Namaste, today is Sunday, 8 p.m. in India, and we welcome you to our Virat Hindustan Sangam social media channels program known as Ganga Words of Wisdom. As you all know, we have some interesting topic to discuss on the Sunday evening, along with Dr. Subramanian Swami, who is our founder, uh, patron of Virat Hindustan Sangam. And today we have a very interesting topic, why India's history is distorted. And we have a very interesting guest who will be discussing this issue along with Dr. Swami. And the, our guest is Dr. Raj Vedam. He is an independent scholar on an authority on Indian history. I would like to uh, definitely let you know a little bit more of Dr. Ved, uh, Raj Vedam because it will be interest to all our viewers. Dr. Raj uh, Vedam holds a doctoral degree in electrical engineering and has many years of multidisciplinary work experience in diverse industries, including power, aircraft, analog and digital electronic design, automation and oil and gas. With several journals and conference papers and patents, he is an innovative leader with strong interest in multiple areas of technology. His current professional interests include optimization, modeling and machine learning. As a scientist, Dr. Raj Vedam researches the root of modern sciences, mathematics and technology, whereas Western narratives favor the origin of astronomy and maths, among other fields, as having originated outside India and imported into India during the various invasions. Dr. Raj Vedam's multidisciplinary studies using data for several published sources reveal otherwise. His research proposes an ancient Indian civilization that made great advances in several fields of knowledge. Dr. Vedam believes that an evidence-based narrative of Indian history is urgently needed to correct the grievously distorted identity and history of the Indian civilization. Towards that, he has delivered over 150 talks in various cities in India and USA and over a dozen teaching training workshops. He is visiting faculty at the Hindu University of America and other courses on the research findings. He has also taken the lead in reviewing and correcting school history textbooks in two states in India and Texas in the US. <clears throat> so I welcome Dr. Raj Vedam to our program. And friends, as you all know, VHS under Dr. Swami has been campaigning on various issues of five main points. One of them is to project the correct history of India. We are also happy to note that our last program with Dr. Swami and uh, uh, Major Gaurav Arya, we had, uh, which we had on Afghanistan, the viewership crossed 2,20,000 viewers <laughs> on various social media channels. So we thank our viewers across the globe. We are counting 120 countries across the globe watch this program on every Sunday. And we thank our viewers for your support. We thank our team for their support. I also have to thank my co-host, uh, Professor Arvind Chaturvedi from Delhi and Dr. Mr. Ramesh Swami from uh, uh, USA for their support to put this program together and our technical team led by Ashish Shetty from Mumbai, Tejas Navalgul from Pune, Gadgi Rakesh from Karnataka, Ishwar Ayer from Navi Mumbai, Swami Nathan from Chennai and Vishal Mehta from Mumbai for their background support to put this weekly program together. So 
so with this and it is <coughs> over to dr swami to introduce the subject and then we will have this lively discussion with dr rajvedam over to dr swami thank you dhanyawad thank you jagdish uh, uh, is there a echo no no uh, jagdish uh, you have uh, very correctly pointed out the importance of this subject uh and it's uh, one of the item five items uh, which we have considered as part of our ideology in the virat hindustan sangam uh dr raj vedam uh, is actually a scientist he has set aside time for the sake of the country <clears throat> and in every country they raise this question who are we uh professor samuel huntington at harvard uh, whom I, uh, whom i knew uh, uh, during my time there he has uh, written many of these kinds of books including the clash of civilization for which he became very famous but his uh, real uh, interesting book was the one where he says it was who are we so if we uh, asked an indian who are we till recently at least when all through my school and college days in india we used to say the british created india otherwise we are just a bunch of quarreling kingdoms uh, and uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, people in iran or in uh, some islamic country had given us the name uh, hindustan uh, because in the this piece of land was on this side of sindhu river and therefore they couldn't pronounce a sir and particularly persian language there's no sir it's her so sir became her and this is and we call hindu actually um, deeper research shows that uh, hindu has been used in a lot of our ancient literature as a sandhi of two words like many things we have a sandhi of dravid means dravid uh, means three where the three oceans meet the same way he for himalaya and hindu for hindu sagar uh, this is this sandhi uh, is hindu is one 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 thesis i mean one hypothesis so uh, therefore i think uh, uh, this this thing has to come but the british very systematically when uh, macaulay came and uh, into parliament in britain and gave the minute on education for india he wanted us to forget indians to forget the past he said the indians must have british values must have british customs must have british inclinations british eating habits uh, they will be only brown and uh, black uh, and uh, otherwise they will be englishmen in a cultural sense and then he said the one row of a library in the british museum is worth more than all the sanskrit books and at the same time when the invading uh, muslim uh, uh, you know invaders came they also targeted in the sanskrit books and burnt it down it was done with nalanda in uh, bihar and so on so what we are doing now is to reconstruct our past fortunately slowly uh, you know people are accepting that we uh, hindus have been in india for a long time uh, time immemorial 
And uh, UNESCO is also recognizing the only surviving continuing civilization in the world out of the 46 civilizations that have been is the Hindu civilization of India. So, uh, uh, but the question is how to remove the brainwashing that has taken place. Aryan, Dravidian, even people today talk about Aryans and Dravidians. And, uh, but there is no such word Aryan in any part of our uh, scriptures. There's a word Arya, but that is a neutral, race neutral word means uh, uh, civilized cultured person and so on. It applied to everybody up in the northeast and west. So, uh, Dravid is a word first coined by Adi Shankara. When he was asked in Bihar, when he met Mandana Mishra to challenge him to a debate, which is the Shastrat system, no using bullets and guns to convert people uh, or uh, inducement. You have a debate with the Guru. And if the Guru is defeated, I wonder, you know, in the case of Shankaracharya, he was Advaita and the, you know, fundamental uh, on the fundamentals of Hinduism. And Mandana Mishra was a great uh, Buddhist scholar. And so uh, the debate took place and uh, Mandara Mishra was defeated and uh, he converted to uh, Hinduism uh, and uh, what we call it Sanatan Dharma and became the first Shankaracharya in Shingeri. So, you know, the, the, the history puts us together very correctly. Today, modern science is also supporting all this. For example, uh, the, uh, the the genetic uh, studies, uh, for instance, the Journal of Genet Genetics in the University of Cambridge or Houston or uh, in uh, Mysore, they all have published research to show that Indian DNA is just one. I mean, there may be 5% here, there in some fringe corner, but broadly speaking, uh, Indians are all of one uh, of one DNA. And so that means uh, we, you know, even if the invaders came, there were such microscopic numbers that they, they either settled here and married here or, uh, you know, or, or whatever way, uh, the, the population is now dominantly a Hindu population by genetics. So uh, how to put this all together? And in the long run, I think uh, Dr. Vedam and uh, and uh, Malotra, Rajiv Malotra, etc., uh, uh, Professor Singh in uh, Massachusetts, they all must come together and create a text, which then I can campaign here. We tried in uh, our government, had tried it in uh, thing, but the bureaucrats of uh, of uh, of our ministry, they don't change their ways very easily. They appointed in the committee. Even people who were, uh, you know, great propagators of Aryan and Dravidian theory and that uh, Shivaji was a chicken thief, that kind of thing. So uh, we are very happy that our uh, Gyan Ganga is getting an opportunity of a true scientist. He's not just uh, some uh, rabble rouser, uh, a scientist to tell us about uh, history. And I think in particular, uh, our chronology. Which I, I, for which I did a lot of research for the Ramsetu to find out it was at least 7,000 years ago, which means the Ramayana was not later than 5,000 uh, years ago. 
some uh, of the uh, geological studies show it was 10,000 years. So, I mean, it doesn't matter. But I would like to say my, as a, my last comment, in the Puranas, they have given for every king who was born the exact position of the stars and the planets. So, by that, using a computer, you can get the exact date. Suppose you want the exact date when the Mahabharata war started. According to uh, the, uh, uh, the, the computers, uh, based on the Puranic data and what is there in the Mahabharata, it turns out to be uh, the war was in uh, 3021 uh, 3, uh, uh, BC or something like that, you know, very close to that, uh, the plus minus 5. So, therefore, uh, we are now reaching a stage where we can challenge all what the British did and through the duties that they created in India, who would get scholarships only if they just, uh, spouted this line. If you, you, if you deviated, they will throw you out. So that uh, uh, we have brought in this and people like uh, Vedam and uh, others, if they can get together and create a new society uh, just for this purpose of writing a history book, uh, I, sitting in India, will do my best to see that you are facilitated for it. And therefore, uh, today we are all looking forward to hear uh, the, uh, the uh, comments of uh, Dr. Vedam and his thesis about our historic past. Over to you, Dr. Vedam. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Swami. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be on your channel. Thank you very much for highlighting this work. Uh, okay. so, so that said, let me jump into the topic itself. So uh, for the longest time, Indians have been happy with their notion of history. And what has been the Indian notion of history? Well, we have had the Puranas, like you mentioned. We have had the Itihasas. We have had Stala Puranas. We have had temple epigraphy that tells us who we are and which kings lived here. And we have had uh, folk songs and uh, of rulers and their exploits of heroes and these kind of things. So Indians have been very happy with this notion of history for the longest time. The way of writing history as we see today came about with the colonial people. And it's very important to see when did some of these narrations of our history start. So I like to first address the question, who distorted Indian history? If we take that as a central premise that it is distorted, who distorted this Indian history? I have identified in the works that I've done that there are five frameworks. There are five frameworks that have been applied to the narration of Indian history, and we can call out these agencies. The first agency, like we said, is the colonial people. So the colonial people formed the first agency that encountered, wanted to write the history of India and wrote it in a certain way to suit their purposes, and they did that. We'll discuss that. The second agency is the Eurocentric forces. Eurocentric forces had wanted to know what is their relationship with the Indians, given the commonality of Sanskrit, Latin, and Greek. And so they embarked on a certain kind of narrative to suit their ideology. And they were soon followed by the missionaries. Wherever the colonials are, the missionaries aren't far behind. And uh, they had wanted to uh, introduce a certain kind of dynamic in the Indian uh, uh, historical context where there's an oppressor oppressed kind of a relationship coming between invaders and invaded and uh, and so on so for that purposes again we'll, we'll see that and the fourth framework unfortunately since 1947 we have had this uh, uh, Nehruvian socialism which has taken hold of the academia 
And the academias has got a certain kind of way of looking at things and they have imported alien sociological lenses to study all of Indian social dynamics and they form the fourth framework that has distorted the Indian history. Finally, since 1971 or so, we know the Marxists have controlled the education sector in India and they have brought about their own ideology, not very different from the socialist uh, academia and uh, they control a certain kind of narrative. So we can neatly take any narrative on Indian history, whether in media, whether it is in uh, academia or anywhere, and we can find a framework. One of these five frameworks is where they belong, and that's why that narrative is coming. So the first thing we need to do to reclaim things is to understand who distorted Indian history is these five frameworks. The second question comes, why was Indian history distorted? Well, we know when the East India Company came to India and they encountered this uh, great opportunity, not just to trade, but actually take control of many of these uh, provinces and uh, enrich themselves and so on. So they embarked on this idea of trying to understand who exactly these Indians were and uh, how can we control them. Eventually, when the crown also took over at a certain point in time and uh, Maculay and others, 1825 and so on, a certain kind of ideology crept in into the colonial Indology. And that ideology was, we need to show the Indians as backward, primitive, stagnant, superstitious kind of a civilization, whereas the British are enlightened, forward, technologically advanced and have much to offer the Indians. So that kind of an ideology took root and we see that clearly in writings of James Mill and so many other historians, we see this kind of a narrative. Prior to them in the 1700s itself, when these worthies such as uh, uh, William Jones and uh, others came on the scene, they were people from the Anglican church of a certain persuasion. The educated Englishman of that era strongly believed in a certain biblical chronology. In that biblical chronology, some bishop had uh, counted all the genealogies of the prophets in the Old Testament, who begat whom and all those kind of things. And he declared that the world was created in 4004 BC, sometime in October by God, <laughs> and was also destroyed by Noah's flood around 3000 BCE. And nothing could have survived the flood event and everything else has to follow from that. So they looked at the sons of Noah, Ham, Japheth, and Shem as having populated the world, the white people, the Jewish people, and the colored people through Ham. And this was their racial idea based on biblical, biblical chronology and so on. So they applied this ideology on the history of India and asked questions, how on earth are the Puranas talking about such ancient timelines? It is impossible because we know God only created the world in 4000 BC. Therefore, <laughs> the Puranas must be distorted. So they had the white man's burden of having to correct the narrative, which they went about happily distorting all of the Puranic chronology. And uh, I think Kota Venkatachalam has shown very clearly in his book that they, they took, for example, Chandragupta Maurya. The Puranas are clearly stating that he's got to be around 1200 BCE. But they said phonetically, this uh, Sandrakotos and it belongs to this time frame, Greek contact, 300 BCE and all those kind of things. And they happily moved him down over there, resulting in great distortions in the Indian chronology. In fact, uh, Kota Venkatachalam says prior to this kind of uh, narrative, the Indian chronology, sorry, the Purana chronology had perfect matching the Nepal chronology with the Kashmir chronology and so on. 
But after the British were done with their moving things around, saying this is a fictitious king that must come down, this must go up, throw these people out, and uh, reducing the chronology, even today we cannot reconcile the Purana chronology with what we are studying in our textbooks. Thanks to the machinations of these uh, uh, William Jones and other worthies who took it upon themselves to correct this based on biblical ideas. So the framework of colonialists was based on biblical chronology. And we know that from their writings, whether it's William Jones or Max Muller, Max Muller in a letter to his wife, he says that only if we show Indians the root of everything that sprung from the Vedas, that I believe is the best way to uproot all that has come from it for the last 3,000 years or so. So they came with a certain ideology. William Jones says in his own writing that, I strongly believe either the first eight chapters of Genesis are true, or the entire fabric of our national religion is false. So these people came with the Genesis chronology. It's very clear from their writings. I don't have to uh, invent this. Go and read the writings and you know the ideology they came with and it says this. So that is a colonial ideology. William Jones also said, look here, it looks like Sanskrit, Latin and Greek are related because many of the words are related. So this set up a storm in Europe in, in the, around the 1800s asking why are these languages related? Does it mean that white Europeans are related to the Indians who appear to be Hamitic kind of tradition and they are the Shem or the Japheth kind of tradition? How is that possible? So that led to this field of uh, linguistics, comparative method, where they tried to explain why is Sanskrit related to the European languages. And they went through some various uh, ideologies, power laws, inventing one law after the other to decide how does a word morph from one language to the other, which is an older form of a, a sound, which is a newer form of a sound like ba becoming ba or things of that nature, trying to understand these kind of sound laws. And they constructed elaborately the relationship between languages, proposing that there was a hypothetical proto-Indo-European language, which is the ancestor of all of the current day languages, including languages that have become extinct. So this was their proposal. That led to the next big storm. If there was a proto-Indo-European language, there must have been a speakers, speakers of that language. If there were speakers, there must have been a homeland. Where was that homeland? So that set about several Eurocentric ideas and notions and German Aryanism came about over there. Homeland is proposed anywhere from Germany to uh, Armenia, to Southern Russia, to uh, Central Asia, to Northwest India. All these places were considered as homeland at various points in time. Eventually they landed on Central Asia. Caspian Sea, Black Sea, that is a place where these languages came because it's equidistant to Scandinavia, to India from there. So maybe that is a place where it came from. Around that time, the Germans came with their ideas, uh, uh, one particular linguist who came about saying that these Aryans were blonde people and uh, uh, they were white, blonde kind of people came into the narrative pulled out of a hat, literally pulled out of a hat. And later on, other writers reinforced that idea that Aryans were white, blonde people, and their admixture with the uh, colored people in India led to the kind of color combinations <laughs> that we see. So this is the idea. So it has become an invasion. Around this time, it has become an invasion. Around that time, also convenient readings of Rig Veda were also proposed uh, to, to try to see uh, uh, some, some of these meanings, whether there is a, a migration to India and so those, those kind of things. Then we have the archaeology. Marshall, who worked on Harappa and so on in the early 1900s, they discovered Harappa and they said, whoa, this is a civilization that is much more ancient. And uh, 
Marshall, he proposed that Mohanjadaro, the peak was 3200 BC and ended by 2500 BCE. Clearly, 1000 years before the alleged arrival of the Aryans. However, Michel Danino points out in one of his papers that what really happened over here was that Marshall uh, was followed by Wheeler. And Wheeler is an archaeologist who brought down that chronology. From 2500 BCE, he brought the age of Mohenjo-daro down to 1500 BCE, making it possible conveniently for the invading Aryans to have destroyed Harappa. <laughs> so they also had these convenient readings of Rig Veda translations showing that Indra was a warrior and he was destroying all these poors and destroying these people and uh, uh, looking at skeletons over there in uh, Harappa, they, they showed evidence of destruction. And uh, Marxist historians like Kosambi came on the scene saying that, yes, they embellished it tremendously, saying, yes, widespread destruction is there, fires and uh, so on. And he, um, Kosambi, in fact, says it's a triumph of a barbaric people over a decidedly superior civilization. So these are the kind of words that he uses to try to embellish these things. However, these uh, 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 Eurocentric people, once they came with this invasion idea, they came about with all of these notions. So we started with uh, saying uh, uh, colonial people, European people, linguistics, it has become an invasion by this time. And so that distortion has started. Aryan people moving from Central Asia, becoming an invasion and destroying the Indian culture. That has become a set idea. Missionaries came around that time, 1825. They lobbied the British crown when the charter of East India Company came for renewal. They lobbied them and said that, look, we need to be included in that uh, kind of going to India and converting the uh, Indians. Prior to them, the Dutch, the Portuguese in their territories, they had also gone about conversions. We know people like Dean Oberle, we know people like Bartholomew Ziegenbach and other such people who had done a lot of conversion work. But primarily people like Caldwell, people like Geo Pope and others, they were at a time when Aryan invasion theory was proposed. They were there at a time when they had proposed there are two language families in India, the so-called Indo-Aryan and the so-called Dravidian. And they exploited these divisions. They said Indians are the Northern Indians, are the Aryans who invaded, driven the original Harappans down to the South who became the Dravidians. And the Travidians are an oppressed people. And this kind of an ideology came about <laughs> hand in hand with a mask for the poverty that was caused by the British. So the poor uh, standing of the uh, Dravidians, in fact, all of Indians, was blamed upon the invading Aryans who denied them opportunities for advancement and these kinds of things. So missionaries came with their own wheeling and dealing over here, atrocity literature. We know of all of these things. Since 1947, like I said, the socialists, Nehruvian ideologies, Fabian ideologies came about with this notion that the old order can be changed and should be changed through democratic means to try to uh, bring in, uh, ushered in this classless utopian society. So with these ideas, they distance themselves from Hinduism and Nehruvian trust with destiny needs to be re-examined. What exactly was this trust with destiny? Was it a clean breakaway from the past and a new India born in 1947 with the flag and with the anthem and other things? Is that all there is to it? Or do we have a connection to our ancient society? Who are we as a people? That identity, identity was severed in 1947 and continued by uh, people who got this etic sociological lenses to examine all of Indian social dynamics whatever social dynamics was there in India, the, the academics, leftist academics, 
academicians, they looked at this as a, a conflict dynamics. Everything was oppressor, oppressed, and these kind of notions. And this caused enormous distortion uh, in the Indian, in, in Indian dynamics. Finally, the Marxists. We all know about Indira Gandhi, 71, political survival and trying to uh, make a pact with the Marxists for uh, communists. And we know since then how many social sciences institutes have been opened and who the patronage for that is and uh, how they have outed, completely ousted is the word, ousted the emic scholar. The internal scholar has got no place anywhere in any Indian university because every rank from the vice chancellors to professors to grants to books and to every single thing has been controlled by the leftist Marxist academia. The Marxists obviously believe that everything is a history of class struggles. History is all class <laughs> struggles only. And so everything in India also can be positioned this way as class struggles and eventually Hinduism must be destroyed and only then uh, you can get this classless uh -huh. society. So these five frameworks have controlled the narration of Indian history and the reasons for their uh, controlling, I just outlined them. So ideology plus history has meant a subversion of our core identity. This is the central uh, point I wanted to make when I said, uh, who, who distorted Indian history? Why was Indian history distorted? This leads obviously to the next question. What is the impact of this distortion? All right, if these are the five agencies, they distorted it. So what? So why? why what, 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 what do we do about it? So it turns out that this distortion has got enormous bearing on our identity as who we are as a people today. So we are told that we are primarily Aryans, Dravidians, and tribal people. So right there, we have accepted a division in the society and said that uh, uh, anthropological terms like race discredited race ideas have come in over here saying there are at least two races, the Northerns and the Southerners are different races and this kind of an ideology. And uh, this has led to enormous problems we have seen, for example, in the separatist ideas in whether it is in Sri Lanka or in Tamil Nadu, we have seen uh, certain ideologies are propagated that there are distinct people, separate history, separate language, separate everything. And a state of purity can be got by purging out all the historical baggage of Sanskrit uh, over here. These kind of idea ideologies are prevalent even today in places like this. Now, uh, Another major consequence that I have found uh, by accepting this distortion is it denies the Indian knowledge systems. It denies the Indian knowledge system because people say, look here, according to Max Muller and linguistics, all of your literature can be stuffed from 1200 BC to around 200 BC, Chandas period, Mantra period, Brahmana period, everything stuffed in 1200 BC to 200 BC, which means you are a young civilization. In fact, you were all nomads when you came to India from Central, Central Asia. You destroyed a Harappa civilization. India had to wait for 1,000 years before civilization came again in Magadha. <laughs> After Magadha's contact with Greeks, Greek taught us to be civilized again, and we again became civilized. This is the narrative that is there in the textbook even today. So India had to wait for civilization. So they say, if your civilization only came in 200 BCE, guess what? You have not had enough time for knowledge generation. You didn't even have a script after Harappa. After Harappa, there was no script. We see only in Ashokan edicts, we're seeing some Brahmi and all those kind of things. You don't have anything over here. So you didn't have a script. You are not civilized. You are not educated. You are illiterate and all these kind of ideas. So you did not have time for knowledge generation. Knowledge of what? Whether it's medicine, mathematics, astronomy, mm -hmm. sciences, you name it. 
you name it. We have not had the time for knowledge enriched. So they say, aha, you must have got your knowledge from the Babylonians. You must have got your knowledge from the Greeks. You must have got it from the Chinese. You must have got it from Egyptians. All these older civilizations gave you knowledge. That's why you are knowledgeable. So the distortion, what is the impact of the distortion? It denies us our history. It denies us our civilizational knowledge systems. It denies us our identity. It, uh, it, it encourages all of these divisions that we see today. So these are the kind of some of the impacts that we see. And that leads to one more uh, uh, question I'll address, and I'll stop over there, Dr. Swami. So the question it says is, so uh, how do we prove this distortion wrong? Since our assertion is that it is a distortion, and laid out the agencies responsible for distortion, laid out their ideologies and why they did this distortion, laid out the impact of the distortion, question comes, how do we prove that this distortion is wrong? Well, there are many ways we can counter it because everything goes back to the central idea of Aryan invasion slash migration. If this incident happened from Central Asia into India, two people in India destroying older civilization and all these kind of things, our core identity is written by this point event and we need to try and address that. And there are many ways to counter the Aryan invasion or migration theory. People are much uh, before me, much better people have worked on this. People can address because linguistics is used to talk about Aryan invasion theory. We had to look at the people who talked about linguistics and two of the thought leaders today are uh, Srikant Thalagiri and uh, uh, Nicholas Kazanas. They have talked a lot about linguistics and uh, in, in a nutshell, his um, Talagiri central idea is that if the homeland is situated in Northwest India and it is an out of India expansion to propagate languages, then everything logically, rationally, evidence falls in place. And uh, Talagiri says, if the homeland is in Central Asia, there are so many logical inconsistencies, rational problems, and uh, other, other such things. And he's recounted this in his talks and books brilliantly, and one can go and take a look at that. On the other hand, uh, uh, Nicholas Kazanas. Kazanas comes and says he studied all the comparative stories, the Scandinavians, the Baltic people, the Indian people, and others. And he's saying that if there was a proto-Indo-European language, it is so ancient that there is no data today to reconstruct that language. So he says all of these papers that talk about reconstructing proto-Indo-European language is rubbish. He just says it's all utterly baseless, circular arguments, the way it is done. He critiques the entire method. He says that you use Sanskrit to construct this proto-Indo-European language, which is an uh, assumption. Then you turned around and made that assumption into a fact, saying that, yes, there was a PIE language, and you made a Sanskrit as a derivative of that assumption, which is utterly absurd in, in a logical scientific way of doing things. We don't do that. We don't take assumptions and make them into facts and uh, base a thesis on that. So the, clearly there are problems over there. So the next other major thing is archaeology. In today in India, paper after paper is coming almost every month in journals like Nature, Cell, and so on, whether it's paleontology, whether it's archaeology, that is talking about human presence in India going back to ancient times. You read the works of Shanti Papu, for example. She says that in Tamil Nadu, they have found axes, hand axes and other such things by uh, optical simulated luminescence. She's saying, I can date it one million years ago. One million years ago, probably it is Homo erectus and other such uh, 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 specimens living in India at that time. She's showing that. 
Then she's showing in another paper that uh, in Athirampakam in Tamil Nadu, she's saying that there are stone tools that are 350,000 to 175,000 years ago. And these are very specialized stone tools. These are stone tools specialized for scraping a skin of uh, flesh or for cutting edge or for like a, a javelin point and things of this nature. Such kind of tools are associated with uh, superior cranial capacity like uh, uh, Homo sapiens. So she's pointing out to things like that. Just two or three days back, there was another paper that said that 177,000 years ago in Rajasthan, they found uh, evidence of uh, stone tools by people who were living there. And there's probably some connection between these two. And then we have seen papers all over India, whether it is through empty DNA or through other kind of analysis that uh, who we call as Homo sapiens, modern Homo sapiens, have been in India at least from the last 80,000 years they've been living in India. So bottom line, we are seeing, uh, 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 if you take a look at uh, uh, archaeology or paleontology, there is great antiquity of widespread presence of humans in India, whether it's Homo erectus, early Homo sapiens or later Homo sapiens, we are seeing presence all parts of India, southern India, central India, eastern, western, northern, everywhere we are seeing that. Today, everybody talks about genetics. But in genetics, if you take a look at the empty DNA, the maternal mitochondrial, uh, mitochondrial chromosome, if you look at that analysis, it is saying out of Africa, the most ancient lineages are to be found in India. And these uh, lineages are called by letters like M, N, R, and so on. And so the research today is showing that all of the world other than Africa was populated from this Indian lineages of M, N, and R, going back to almost 60,000, 70,000 years ago. And the same thing we find in the Y chromosomal research. We go to the Y chromosomal research, that too is showing that outside of Africa, the most uh, ancient lineages are to be found in India. It is from India that it went to other parts of the world. So as far as genetics is concerned, it is showing these things. Now people are saying the linguistic uh, advancement into India and Aryan invasion can be linked to the so-called Arvan uh, AZ93 uh, high high resolution bichromosomal uh, marker. But even that, I've shown that on the one side you have David Reich who's saying yes, about four thousand years have passed between present-day Indians and a common ancestor in Central Asia and this particular gene. On the other side, there is a, a French professor who's saying more than 15,000 years ago, there was a common ancestor. In other words, geneticists, even today, there are papers published that are contradicting each other's works. And I've tried to analyze why is the reason for that. And they all stem to some basic methodological issues, issues such as what is the sample size? Who are the people you've admitted in that sample? And what is the reliability of the methods that you're using? So most of my, uh, in my talks, I've discussed this in fairly some detail, but the bottom line is even in genetics, which is not a primary line of evidence, by the way, because it makes use of constraints from linguistics. It makes use of constraints from archeology span to propose its ideology. So even that, uh, uh, there are questions. Then one can go into Saraswati. Saraswati, we have talked about this extensively. Yeah. People like Michel Danino and General Bakshi and others have talked about this. And we know that Saraswati is talked about as a flowing river in the Rig Veda. How is that possible if this river dried in 1900 BCE? How is that possible? Well, the leftist line has been, it is not. Saraswati is a mythical river. In fact, NCRT yeah. textbooks don't even mention Saraswati by name. Yeah, right. Even today, even today, they don't mention Saraswati River by name. They say rivers dried up. They don't say which river dried up. 
anyway <laughs> the, uh, they say that on the way to india they encountered a river in afghanistan and they identified that river as saraswati so this is <laughs> the gold posts are always removed whenever evidence is found finally there are so many other evidences one looks at uh, astronomy archaeoastronomy there are so many artifacts in our texts that can be dated reliably to right. ancient dates and the question comes is all of indian scriptures one massive co uh, conspiracy where our ancient rishis and others decided you know let's fool these guys in uh, the year tw uh, 2000 and uh, let's <laughs> pretend we have great antiquity no these were all obviously maybe one or two forgeries could be there i'm just admitting that there's no reason for people who seek truth to forge anything but the point is if there was it cannot be widespread like this then the next uh, glaring instance showing in our faces whether you take any writer any period of time go back to the most ancient rishis go back to yagnavalkya go back to vedavyasa go back to anybody through the medieval times through the uh, ancient times through the colonial times whether it's north india south india not one writer is talking about aryan invasion not one writer is saying great bands of people came into india and we are two people that we moved people to the south and the, all these kind of things not one is saying we are two people not one is saying any of these in fact all the indian works from any part of india is showing a commonality of the culture a continuity of the civilization and commonality of the culture so i think uh, concluding over there uh, dr swami i think there is a lot of evidence from various places whether it is linguistics whether it is scripts whether it is uh, the 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 uh, uh, scientific things like evidence of rice cultivation or the antiquity of iron or whether it is cattle genomics or various other things we have lot of data points that call into question the so called aryan invasion slash migration theory and posit that the uh, all this evidence becomes logical and rational if you position an ancient indian civilization showing continuity and moving out of india in various time frames because of climatological things like for example we had a 200 year monsoon failure around 2000 bce so that led to an outward migration of people and we know that from cattle genomics we know that from indian ideas that came in uh, uh, sumeria egypt other talk yeah. about this in my antiquity of medical systems talk and so on so this is what we are seeing today unfortunately our textbooks continue to propagate the old line because we have got five agencies holding <laughs> this narrative dearly to their chest yeah. they are not going to let go they are not going to let go the five agencies are holding this tightly to their chest and we need to figure out ways to pry open those hands and say you are wrong utterly wrong the evidence is over here evidence is here and we need to change narratives i will i will stop over there dr swami thank you very much that was a magnificent lecture uh, and so well presented and i think uh, Uh, I don't think that uh, half an hour, forty-five minutes is enough for you. It, uh, we probably need a weekly series from you on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, I agree with you. See, um, uh, when I'm, I've been a student of China, and uh, um, I read the pilgrims who came from here, the Buddhist for search of Buddhist documents. <clears throat> so uh, one was Fai, uh, Fai, uh, uh, you know, Fajian, which uh, the Indians pronounce as Fajian or something like that. 
he came to India and he spent 11 years here. And he traveled all over India and finally went from, uh, from uh, Kanchipuram out sea by sea, sea, ship uh, to, uh, uh, to China. Now, he describes ruins and ruins and ruins. Now, that is impossible if you accept the British dating system because that is the exact period of the golden age of Hinduism of uh, the Chandragupta Gupta regime. It was Vishnu Gupta, one of the Guptas that time. And uh, it was a Gupta empire which was flourishing at its peak. And here uh, Fasian says uh, there's nobody here. I mean, it's all ruins, ruins, ruins. I'm only seeing ruins. So like this there, um, they, they, for long years they said, that Krishna was a mythical character because there is no Dwarka anywhere. And then in uh, 1996, I think, uh, uh, S.R. Rao, uh, he discovered that it had sunk. Uh, you know, Dwarka had sunk under the ocean. We have still not lifted it. There's right. a controversy going on. Can we afford to uh, you know, spend money on all these ancient matters, etc.? But Krishna's hometown of, I mean, a place of his domicile of uh, Dwarka is available. Ram Setu, everything about Ram Setu can be traced to Ramayana. Right. That they, you know, uh, the, the rocks were brought by the monkeys uh, to the middle of the ocean because there were no rocks available in the middle of the ocean. But the, these rocks were actually corals. That's why when you separate them, they float on the water. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. don't sink. Mm -hmm. And so it had to be cemented. And uh, uh, and this is what uh, Hanuman's despair was when he wrote, uh, until he wrote Ram on every rock, it wouldn't, say, it wouldn't settle down. This has been proved. And it has been dated to at least 7,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Which coincides with our uh, more uh, recent uh, and, uh, dating system of Rama. So I think you know this is a, this is a huge ocean that we have to do. But fortunately, uh, the UNESCO has declared of all the forty-five civilizations, only surviving continuing civilization is the Hindu civilization of India, and uh, we are. You are, while you are mentioning about Northeast, you are, what about the Ahom dynasty? Right. Six times they defeated the Mughals right. and sent them back. Otherwise, mm -hmm. the Mughals were crossed and the whole of Southeast Asia would have become Islamic. Right. But you no, know, not a line of it in the in the history. So um, uh, uh, before I go to my colleagues, uh, we have to thank uh, uh, Ramesh for having identified you. And uh, I mean, of course, I know you by name. I, I, I now realize that in Houston, uh, I should have met you. Uh, but uh, the fact is that uh, uh, we are very pleased to have you here. And uh, I think uh, my colleagues all have different questions. Ramesh, would you like to start or you can ask Arvind to start? Yeah, uh, Arvind can start. Arvind Jagdish, he can start. Yeah, Arvind, you're muted, muted. 
Raj, Dr. Rajvedam, thank you very much. And what I'll repeat what Dr. Swami just now said. Thanks to Ramesh. And uh, Virat Hindustan Sangam, in this program, in this channel called uh, Words of Wisdom, has been inviting experts in culture, history, and this subject has been dealt with. We have had Dr. Manish Pandit, we have had uh, Subhas Kak, we have Antonia Filmer, we had Rajiv Alotra, I mean, KK Mohammed. You name the experts in this area, and we have had uh, people. And thanks uh, for uh, sparing time for this. Uh, Dr. Swami has written about extensively about uh, Aryan invasion theory in all his books. I have one book here right now. Uh, this is called uh, Hindutva and the National Renaissance. And in this book, he has mentioned about uh, Aryan Devadian theory. And after extensive research, Dr. Swami quotes, and I want your reaction. He says, in the light of such new research, the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, completely debunked Aryan Devadian theory by saying that theory was not just wrong, it included unacceptably racist ideas. And the purpose and the motive, we all know that why British were doing it. Your comments first. Absolutely. I concur. I concur with that, uh, with that statement. And at the heart of this, the colonial Indology, like I said, it is based on biblical racial ideas. These ideas that Noah's descendants, uh, his son, Japheth, Shem and uh, Ham, they, uh, I think through Japheth, the white race came, race, and through uh, Japheth, Shem, the Jewish people, and through Ham, all the colored people, Africans, Indians, everybody came through that. So they saw the world through that prism. When you're seeing the world through that prism, then everything looks clearly according to the biblical ideology, chronology, racial theories, and every such thing. They looked at it that way. So when the, uh, when the colonialists and the linguists proposed this Aryan invasion theory that there are two people in India, two language families in India, Caldwell seized upon that. He seized upon that immediately saying that, yes, uh, the, this shows he introduced a word called um, Brahminical Aryan. It is like a pejorator. It is not meant in any descriptive words as a pejorator. Pejoratively, he said that uh, this Brahminical Aryans came from uh, Northern India or Central Asia. Then they pushed these guys, subjugated them to so-called Dravidians and so on. And he also coined this word Dravidian, by the way, usurping the word Dravidad, like Dr. Swami said, used by Adi Shankara and others to talk with the geographical region. But he made that a racial he made that into a racial connotation. So these kind of false ideas were introduced by these people, followed by people like Risley. Risley, who came about with anthropological metrics, all discredited. People, things like height of the nose, width of the nose to classify yeah, people. Yeah. And he saw so many races in India. There's a colored map that I have in one of my uh, collections. Risley points out there are so many, one, two, three, four, five, six races or so in India by yeah, this. I saw in one of the videos. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so these are the these are the kind of uh, ridiculous notions that, that have come. And at that at that point, they believed it was scientific. But now we know that these are all discredited ideas, racial ideas. And even the notion of race, I question what is this race? What is this race at the genetic level? Can anybody tell what it is? If somebody says race is uh, color of the skin, 
Well, skin is SLC24, A424. This is the allele that is in the 15th chromosome of the human body, responsible for the expression of melanin. That's responsible yes. for what skin tone you'll take as a result of the latitude you live in. Sun rays are direct at the equator That's and right. started somewhere else. That's right. That's yes, right. and there are and there are uh, Brahmins who are dark in Tamil Nadu, and there are uh, Brahmins who are dark in Bihar and places like that. Yeah, and there yeah. are fair-skinned uh, Kshatriyas and Chittiyas <laughs> and Mudaliyas and other such people in Tamil Nadu. So what exactly is this race that people are talking about? There is no such thing as race at the genetic level. In fact, if you take the genetic uh, composition of Indian Indians by all the studies known, I'm not claiming these studies are perfect and complete because the sample sizes are too small. But in the sizes they have done, they've used something called FST, fixation index. It is a measure of if I take 10 locations on the chromosome and measure the differences between various Indian communities and so on, it is a mathematical measure of how uh, how disperse you are, disperse you are, or how disparate you are, or how close you are. Every study has shown Indians are so thoroughly mixed. There is no differentiator saying this community stands out. Whether you are a Brahmin or whether you are a so-called uh, SAST or whatever, all our numbers through the various mutations that we carry, through the various markers we carry, they are showing there is nothing to say. I am standing out. There is no Brahmin gene. There is no Kshatriya gene. There is no Shudra gene. There is no <laughs> such thing. Absolutely no such thing. Indians are uniform in the composition of the of the mutations they carry. So what, the notion of one race, remark, one, one remark yes. uh, in support. Bhagwan Krishna says that uh, this Brahmin Kshatriya division. It's got nothing to do with birth. Yes. In three chapters, different chapters, the same thing he says. Yes. He yes. says it's got to do with gunas. Yes. If you're a uh, if you're a jnani, tyagi, and a sasi, you're a brahmin. Right. If you're uh, where you pick up the uh, weapons for defending the country, you're a kshatriya. It's got nothing. And uh, Vishwamitra was born in a kshatriya family, right. and he right. later became a uh, the rishi of rishis. What to talk? And same thing with the Vedavyasa, his mother was a fisherwoman. Yes. So what is the, this birth thing is the most bogus imposition, uh, uh, you know, by no, the British. Even, even by the modern science, Dr. Swami, you have been saying that the, the DNA of ah. different people from different parts of India, of different castes or different uh, uh, religion, it is the same. Yes. So yeah, that's what he said. Them, you are confirming that. Yes, that's yes. right. So, so, so I think this the assertion that uh, there was a racial theory that can show differences in Indians is bogus because that concept itself has to be deconstructed. There is no such thing as race. So one will have to see what 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 do geneticists mean when they call race? Is it a collection of genetic characteristics that you'll say, aha, this is the Indian race and that is some other race? Well, define it, define it, and then we'll have this dialogue. There is no yeah. such definition yet. So racial theories are bogus. If anybody comes on the basis of race, you can reject it right there. Just like we reject anybody who comes on the basis of caste. I cannot have a conversation on the basis of caste because I don't know what that is. I don't know what That's that right. is, whether the racial <laughs> level of this It's a Portuguese term. Yes, yes, That's yes. All. So we, we, we know Jati Varna. Jati, yeah. We can't use these imported uh, casta and things of that for to describe who we are as a people. We can't do that. So we can't have a dialogue over there. Jati was, uh, Jati was uh, brought in only for marriage reasons so that you don't uh, 
you know, if, if sisters and brothers marry, their children will all become genetically, uh, you know, uh, uh, retarded. So that's what happened to the pharaoh. Pharaohs. So, so prevent uh, that kind of marriage. The jati was introduced. Anyway, sorry, I'm interrupting you. The audience is looking for you. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks. But just I thought I'll add to what you said. Thank Absolutely. You. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Our, our notions of Jati, Varna, Gotra and other things were invented, uh, were uh, rather developed to, to keep, to make sure that uh, these kind of marriages don't take place and such and notions of that nature. But Varna right. is fluid. Varna is fluid and anybody could take any Varna and that's what our history shows us. That is the bottom line yeah. with these, yeah. with these flagship people like uh, Valmiki and Vedavyasa. And many, many other communities we have seen in history, which move across the uh, across the Varna spectrum. We know of people, Saurashtra Brahmins, for example, who they were prior to their settling in uh, Tanjavur and places like that. So we Madurai. have seen instances of entire communities changing their Varna and other such things. So, and even yeah. if you read Adi Shankara's um, Vajrasuchi Upanishad, who questions what is unique about a Brahmin. And he makes it clear with a set of rhetorical questions. It is not in his body. It is not in his habits. It is not in his knowledge. It is not in anything that he's unique as a Brahmin. But the fact that he is enlightened and he has no malice towards anybody. That is what would differentiate you. In other words, again and again, we are seeing these notions of so-called caste, these notions of race. These are all bogus in the Indian context. These are philosophical ideas that have been uh, uh, um, highlighted and upheld throughout the civilization. Yeah. I have a question, Dr. Raj Vedamji. Uh, it's for the benefit of the viewers so that they can understand, because I know in 45 minutes we can't cover everything. You had used astronomy as one of the bases, astro astronomy. Can you yes. give us some vivid examples to our viewers how our dating or studies uh, can be safely uh, put in place as, as per astronomy so our people have a better idea and better place of argument they can make with people who spread this communist and outdated history in India. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, certainly, certainly. So the in Indian uh, literary works, we have often referenced astronomical points because Indians use the celestial calendar celestial calendar was used for measuring the passage of time even today we use panchanga as a five-dimensional measurement whether we're using the nakshatra of the day the tithi which is the phase of the moon or whether we're using yoga karana and vara and other things we are using these five-dimensional measurements to figure out the passage of time so indians have known about the synodic month and the sidereal month what do these refer to sidereal is when the moon Every day it rises on the east about one muhurta later, about 40, 40, 48 minutes later, it comes to the eastern horizon. Therefore, it appears against a different backdrop of the stars. Indians had observed this. Indians observed that the moon takes approximately 27 days to come back to the same backdrop of the star. So they divided the sky into uh, 27 segments, which they called as nakshatras. And in each nakshatra, they identified a principal brightest star so they can identify what that nakshatra is. And for a mnemonic, they gave it a story, a beautiful story of Chandra, who married the 27 daughters of King Daksha. 
and through the uh, king's moon's wife's names we get to know which nakshatra follows which one because so many stories are associated with them so we know positionally what follows the other beautiful interweaving of wisdom and stories is there in the indian context puranas and others anyway i digress so yep. indians could sorry dr somi go ahead no no i to add to what you said you know that uh, the italians uh, put uh, galileo in the, in the jail because he said the sun doesn't go around the earth it is the earth which goes around the sun which is what indians have always been saying and uh, they, they said no you can see sun in the uh, morning there and uh, in the afternoon there and in the evening there is a sun which is going around and not the uh, the earth which is going around Like, so like, you know, astronomy was so developed. We just knew everything, the path, and all that. And today, our younger generation knows nothing about what true, all we were true. so it's far ahead. Tragedy. <laughs> tragedy. So, but but Sorry. the thing is, Indians, in, Indians knew the ideal. Sorry, go on. No, 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 doctor. Vedam, please complete. You are saying something on astronomy. Yes. So Indians knew the sidereal month. They knew synodic month. Synodic month is the phase of the moon. from uh, amavasya to purnami back to amavasya they knew it takes approximately 30 days they knew that so they could measure synodic month sidereal month and from uttarayana and dakshinayana they could figure out based on the shadows that come into your house on the eastern side every day the moon's shadow sorry sun's shadow is offset a little every day it is offset a little so they could figure out the northern course of the sun six months six months southern course of the sun and they could precisely measure the solar year also at 365.24 days so indians had a perfect measurement of all of these things they knew about the solstices the two solstices and the two equinox positions and they always referenced what was the nakshatra at a solstice point what was the nakshatra at the equinox point the indian new year would start for example the vernal equinox and they'd know what nakshatra was over there so based on these and the measurements that they have done uh, sorry the observations that done at text we are able to call these things out and measure why what is this measurement over here the measurement is because the earth in addition to going around the sun in 365.24 days in addition to rotating once in 24 hours it's also doing something called precession that precession means where we are pointing to in the sky in the northern hemisphere we are pointing to a star called polaris which we call dhruva Dhruva is immobile in the sky. We are pointing at Dhruva. That point, we are tracing a slow circle that takes twenty-six thousand years to complete. And what does that mean? Why does it happen? It happens because of the gravitational action of the Sun, Moon, and to some extent Jupiter. Earth is wobbling, just like you play with a top as a child. You tie a string around a top and uh, spin it. The top spins very, very, very fast. But as it is spinning, sometimes it is doing a slow wobble. and earth is doing that the fast spin is 24 hours the slow spin is 26000 years as a consequence of that where the earth is pointing to keeps changing in the sky as it is changing in the sky the nakshatra at the cardinal point of astronomy meaning equinox or solstice is not constant it changes at the rate of 50.3 seconds per year if you add it over thousands of years it moves away by several degrees because of this phenomena mathematically in planetarium software or mathematics we can precisely say when an observation is made for example we have an ancient text called vedanga jyotisha 
Vedanga Jyotisha has got an allusion to the uh, vernal equinox in, uh, sorry, winter solstice in Dhanishtha Nakshatra. Winter solstice in Dhanishtha Nakshatra happened last in 1440 BCE. And this was also clarified by uh, many people like Dikshit, for example, Lokamanya Tilak, and also Kolbrook. Before them, Kolbrook also had offered this as a date. And this was something that Max Miller was forced to accept. He accepted this only because it was after Aryan invasion theory. Now, if you take another book, there is Yajna Valkya's famous Shatapata Brahmana. Shatapata Brahmana, Yajna Valkya is saying how to find the east direction. East direction is important because we put our Yajna or altar over there, we put the bricks, we form the east direction and we do everything in the east direction. So it's not as simple as wherever the sun is, that is the east direction, because we know six months southern coast, so from minus 23.3, sun goes to plus 23.3. It's only on the day of the equinox, it's truly pointing to true east direction. That is when the sun is on something called the celestial equator. Now, Yajna uh, is saying to find the east direction, he's saying Kritika Nakshatra never swerves from the east direction. Now, if we take that as an astronomical observation, and this is what Dikshit had done in the 1800s, also Lokamanya Tilak, it points out that when was Kritika last on the celestial equator? Because of precision, we can work backwards in time and it works out to 2982 BCE. In 2982 BCE, the brightest star of uh, Pleiades, which is Kritika, was on the celestial equator. Today it is not. Today it is uh, moved far away because uh, 5,000 years have elapsed at the rate of 50.3 seconds per year. You can multiply and see how many degrees it has gone. It is moved far from that. Like this, there are several instances. For example, for example, when um, the French astronomer Lee Gentle, he came to Pondicherry, that, that time France was uh, controlling Pondicherry in the 1700s, he came to observe a transit of Venus from Pondicherry, and he got some tables from the pundits over there, the Brahmins in Tamil Nadu, who were computing when an eclipse will start, when it will end, and all these things. He called the tables of Trivellor, and he sent them off. He couldn't make sense out of it. He sent it to his buddy, who is Cassini, who is in Italy. Cassini was a mathematician astronomer. He worked it out and said, this calendrical system is referencing an absolute event in 3102 BCE, February 18, 3102 BCE. Yeah. He referenced that. Yes. And later on, other uh, British Indologists like, um, uh, forget the names, uh, uh, Burgess and others in Suri Siddhanta. They found that Suri Siddhanta is also referring to this particular event. Then in Tables of Siam, they've recovered tables in Thailand called Tables, tables of Siam. Even that was referencing this absolute calendar. So people ask, what exactly is this? It turns out to be a planet clustering, moon, sun, planets clustering, the Revati Nakshatra. This clustering last happened in uh, February 18th, 3102 BCE, which Aryabhata has referenced. The temple in Badami is talking about, in epigraphy, it's talking when to construct reference to that. The Mahabharata war has been linked to that time frame by many researchers, and so on. So we have these ancient dates based upon astronomy. If you go even further back, Suri Siddhanta is talking about another great conjunction, Meshirashi. That conjunction happened in 6,200 or so BCE. We know about that. Then if you go to one more amazing incident, if you go to um, the story of Aditi. So if you take a look at Aitriya Brahmana, in Aitriya Brahmana, uh, I, I read, for example, the Martin Hogg translation. There's a verse over there saying the gods 
did not know when to do the sacrifice sacrifice means yagna what is the time to do yagna because the sacrifice had gone away from them so they went to mother aditi aditi if you remember kashyapa diti aditi she is the mother of all the devas and the daityas and others aditi so go to aditi and ask her, please help us we don't know when to do this and aditi says okay i will tell you where the sacrifice is gone but i have a boon to ask and that is all sacrifices shall begin and end with me this is what aditi said and this was identified again by balagangadhar tilak as well as uh, professor abhayankar who pointed this out as an archaeoastronomical observation showing the beginning of the new year in punarvashu nakshatra that vernal equinox in punarvashu nakshatra can be dated hold your breath to a staggering 6000 bce so by 6000 bce indians are already observing when to do the auspicious time to do a yagna based upon the position of nakshatra at where they think is a solstice or equinox and by that time it has changed they don't know they don't know when when should i do this uh, uh, auspicious event so they go to aditi and that metaphor is saying now we have shifted the calendar to aditi aditi is the deity of punarvashu nakshatra and uh, uh, if you see punarvashu nakshatra you see the star castor and pollux castor and pollux are the greek names indian names are diti and aditi so that was last at the vernal equinox position in 6000 bc because of precession and yeah. clearly it is there naitriya brahmana how do we account for this similarly you take the story of surya sanjana and uh, chaya and others ashwinis that story i've talked about and that can also be dated to staggering 7200 bce when uh, uh, ashwinis had appeared at the heliacal rising winter solstice heliacal rising with the sun that is uh, dated to 7200 bc so like this we have lot of archaeological sorry as archaeoastronomical observations peppered in our text different texts are talking about this today we can rationally examine these dates and say this is what is possible and to end this uh, jagdish ji uh, some europeans encountered max muller in a conference and they challenged him and they said should all of indian chronology be held hostage to biblical chronology given that we are uncovering all these archaeoastronomical artifacts that man got so upset that he wrote an entire book on it there is this book on indian astronomy by uh, max muller you may like to download it and google and read it and there he's gone through a lengthy essay in only the way a victorian english man can do words and words paragraphs one words one entire paragraph with a convoluted reasoning it will take a lot of time to understand but the bottom line is he discards all of the puranic literature he says everything's unreliable i don't take the puranas i don't take that i don't take this all unreliable unreliable he only accepted colebrook's date for vedanga jyotisha 1440 bc saying it is after aryan invasion theory why does it matter whether it is 1400 bc or later it's all the same so his admission was not something born of uh, wisdom of the ages where you're saying whether the vedas are 3000 bc or uh, later why what does it matter wisdom is there it was because he was challenged cornered and said what do you do about this unfortunately the view for the, the views that he made fashionable are used even today i have talk to professors today who are apparently sympathetic on the center if you will on the indian cause but they do espouse such loose thinking saying that indian astronomy is unreliable 
we can't take in, in uh, astronomical dates and i query them a little bit and they find their knowledge is zero their knowledge of astronomy is zero let alone indian astronomy and they make these assertions because some powerful man made it in the past this received yeah. wisdom they are just echoing it with no diligence nothing so we we can't take these statements that people make we should with evidence la- rationally logically examine and say please tell me how is this possible one date two dates i can accept coincidence but i have a plethora of dates in various books various things let's have a rational examination for this rational statement is the ancient indian civilization ancient or not and today we are seeing in rakigadi in birana we have got uh, excavations going back 9000 years and that is now corroborating some of the antiquity and talking about 6000 bc 9000 bc we are seeing the archaeology 50 years back we did not have this uh, corroboration of archaeology today we are seeing it last year there was a paper published by professor uh, s ramaswamy from bharatidasan university he has worked in pumpuhar 40 years he worked on pompohar but over the last few years he got the grants from the center to have a remotely operated vehicle went there and uh, studied pompohar as the uh, uh, port port city of the chola empire but it was not always a port city in his paper last year in current science he's showing that port city was relocated seven times because of submergence events he's showing the most ancient artifact was 15000 years ago in pompohar and that is possible if we think of the glacial uh, maximum we had the last ice age the lgm that maximum was around uh, 12000 to 13000 15000 years ago at that time the shoreline would have been exposed much more because water is locked up in ice and professor ramaswamy is providing the evidence for that using remotely operated vehicles with measurements he's showing the receding of the shoreline artifacts ancient harbor and other such things so we have artifacts from pompohar we have artifacts from dwaraka national institute of oceanography has gone there in dwaraka and got artifacts from 8000 years ago yeah dr swami so archaeology is catching up underwater archaeology is catching up with the country and is collaborating the dates that we are seeing mm-hmm. uh, corroborating the dates we are seeing in astronomy so astronomy is not as wild thing they made it out to be but we are seeing uh, evidence in archaeology also okay thank you doctor thank you vedan raj uh, dr swami and uh, raj i have one last question we can close we are actually way beyond our time limit <laughs> thank you for this great lecture as dr swami said we can't do it probably one <laughs> so the, the bottom line is this even after max miller is gone long gone a few i mean maybe even a few centuries we still have the remnants of max miller in the likes of romila tapper and all those things so how do we get rid of this dr swami and how what can people do to get i mean this is also one of the questions that the audience is asking how do we get out of this i mean is there a way for us to break these shackles and move ahead <laughs> well <clears throat> we thought that when uh, bjp will come to power they will do it but uh, unfortunately uh, scholars are at a discount uh, in the present dispensation so uh, just have patience the future is with us it's only a matter of time i mean when i first wrote my first paper uh, and sent it to uh, the indian history conference this is 1968 ramila thapar flatly said you can't uh, come to this conference and uh, and issued instructions to the gate not to let me in it is on the dating question based on my knowledge of uh, 
So, and then of course I ostracized and all that. From that, we have come to this situation where we can challenge. Uh, and I think, uh, 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 I think it's only a matter of time. I don't be disappointed if you haven't been able to do it just now. Thank you. Uh, Raj, do you have a few words to say anything else on what can I'll be just done? Add one more word to what Ramesh said. Uh, 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 we had five years of Atal Bihari Bajpayee and seven seven years of Narendra Damodar Das Modi. And even this 12 years, we have not moved an inch on rewriting of Indian history. No, we are also after, after writing in the manifesto yeah. to Bharati Janta Party since 1980. I think we are moving at the speed of the stars, right? It takes fifty-six thousand years to move. <laughs> so, so my 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 uh, only additional point to what Dr. Swami said is in reclaiming identity today. Like I said, all these narratives are impacting our identity. Who are we as Indians? Yeah. Nobody has a clue. Either we are people who respect the flag, yes, very good, and we uh, sing the national anthem, we play cricket, and we eat a uh, lot of uh, wonderful dishes. So, this is our identity as Indians, and watch Bollywood movies. And very unfortunately, nobody makes a connection to this ancient heritage that we have going back to ancient times. So there is a necessity at the individual level, at the institutional level, at the level of rich industrialists who support some of these causes, at the level of the government to take ownership of this issue at various levels. At the individual level, one has got to become acquainted with the civilization. We can't let go of the cultural practices, our heritage and our history where a parent can now be empowered to go to the principal and say, what is my child learning in the school? This is utter nonsense. Once the principals take this in the PTA meetings and others, we escalate this upwards Then the directorate of textbooks in various cities, they hear this. And once the noise is sufficiently big, hopefully changes can happen. Like I've said, I worked with Telangana, I worked with Andhra Pradesh, I worked with uh, uh, the state of Texas also here in trying to correct some of the narratives. This can be done. But the directorate of textbooks are worried to change the narratives dramatically. They will do simple editorial corrections and other such corrections. But the big issues like Aryan invasion, they won't touch it because the ecosystem is still controlled by powerful Marxists. These five agencies that I said, they're holding it very, very dearly. That change can only happen by a surgical strike from the center. When they go and change the entire ecosystem over there, then it opens up things. People say NEP has now opened the paved the way for doing yeah. these things. I like the draft NEP that are circulated first. When I saw the final NEP, it was clear to me that on that commission, there are people who have voted against the nicer things that were in the draft that have all disappeared. And finally, a watered down version has come. So it's clear to me that the, com the committees are, have got compositions that are inimical to some of the uh, 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 Indian civilization ideas. So they, they don't want that anywhere over there. So there is necessity at the individual level to take control, vote the right people, make sure we hold the uh, voted people accountable, raise these issues, go on social media, be active, learn, listen to the works that people have said. Uh, many, many thought leaders are out there who are given talks, books, read them all, get at the institutional level. 
we have many institutions like Chinmaya Mission, Ramakrishna Mission, 101 different agencies well aligned, and they need to enter the space of academia. They can no longer say we'll only see our founders, bhakti, uh, philosophical traditions, and we don't want to get our hands dirty in these things. Need to move away from that, need to foster conferences they need to have conferences on who's right and what is our identity as Indians, our philosophical identity, our actual identity, who are we? When they take up this cause, things can happen. Supporting of scholars, of the networks, because the government has said we are not going to support these scholars. So people like me are out of the pay. We have a day job where we struggle uh, to survive. And on the sidelines, we do things of this nature. So uh, uh, there's no support. This support can come from these institutions where they can say we can do this. Then we have got uh, uh, corporates with this corporate responsibility, uh, social responsibility, funding, and things of this nature. They need to see how that can be used to strengthen the civilizational identity. Who are we trying to address that question so that it's right. inclusive and tries to bring everybody together? Right. Finally, the government, what kind of bills? What kind of bills the government comes and what kind of uh, statements like? Everything to do with the superstition bill or the right to education act or this control of temples that Dr. Swami has been working on and so many other things. The government can do things and that needs to happen. That needs to happen. We need to say, what is the stress with destiny that we talked about in 1947? Let's define yeah. that. Let's define that. Let's define that and say, is this a disconnection from the past or are we connected to the past? That discussion needs to take place. So there is responsibility reclaiming identity at the individual, institutional, corporate, and government level. There is a collective responsibility for us to change this 300-year-old uh, uh, spiel that has been force-fit into our minds and colonized our minds. Okay. Uh, just one last comment, Dr. Swami, we can close. Uh, I think what you said about CSR, one of the biggest IT corporates in India are actually working against what you're asking for. Right. Sponsoring oh, yeah. scholars in the U.S. in yeah. you know uh, yes, you know yes, things like that. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. go ahead, Abhinji. You can conclude. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Raj Vedam. Uh, you provided a new dimension to the discussion on archaeology, astronomy put together, and as uh, our uh, host Jagdish Shetty had said in the beginning, it has been one of the five major objectives of Virat Hindustan Sangam to provide to the Indians the correct perception of our history. Dr. Swami has been writing on this for the last 40 years. I mean, at least I know for 40 years. Uh, and as he said, 1968, he, he wrote a paper which I was not aware of. So there are very few people who are doing this kind of work. And uh, uh, thanks to uh, Ramesh, that uh, he identified you. I, we saw your video and immediately <laughs> Dr. Swami said, just, uh, he's very articulate, just bring him in. And the uh, first opportunity we brought you. Thank you. Thanks for accepting this and providing yeah. to our viewers a very rich content. In today's program, I was reading some comments which are given by the viewers on the side. And some of them have said, this is one of the best programs of words yeah. of this. Yeah. One of the, right. the best programs of, and in terms of uh, content, uh, as we have seen, maybe one program is not enough. We are already touching almost <laughs> 90 minutes. But this is such a huge subject. Maybe it is not possible in one of the uh, episodes. And we will certainly request you to spare time once again uh, at a later date, whenever it is convenient to you. We will uh, uh, de decide on a topic which is related to this, but which can uh, elaborate on this for our viewers. Thank you very much. 
Dr. Swami, thank you very much for providing the the introduction of the subject as well as, in fact, uh, uh, you have been writing, as I said, for more than uh, 40 years on this subject. And uh, uh, but for your initiative, uh, the some of the people who are taken up this subject in India could not have taken it. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, uh, Jagdish uh, Shetty. Thank you, Ramesh Swamiji. Thanks for the our technical team led by Ashish Shetty, Gadgi Rakesh, Ishwar Ayer, Tejas, Swaminathan, Vishal Mehta. 2,20,000 was the viewership, Jagdish said in the beginning of the last episode. We are overwhelmed by this uh, support uh, uh, from the viewers. And uh, it's just one year or so, one and a half years. In fact, 130th episode today. Uh, initially, we were daily. And then after uh, lockdown, we started a weekly uh, edition. So today is the 130th edition. And we have reached a viewership of more than 2 lakhs per episode. Maybe it will grow further. Thanks for experts like you. And uh, as I said earlier, on the culture, tradition, history, we have brought Subhash Kak, Manish Pandit, KK Mohammed, uh, Rajiv Malhotra, Antonia Filmer, and so on. We have discussed that. And uh, maybe you'll, uh, you, you, your name is added to this list. Thank you very much uh, uh, for the support. And for the viewers, we'll be meeting next Sunday. Again, like uh, every Sunday, 8 p.m. Indian Standard Time, in words of wisdom, Gyan Ganga, next episode. Till then, Namaskar, Jai Hind. Jai Hind. Thank you.